0: to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Father, we love you. And we don't always know how to love in return We don't always know how to give that love to others. Father, we pray now as we think on these things, that you would speak deeply into us, and by the power of your Spirit, you would remake us, after the image of your Son. Amen. Well, if you're new, joining us this evening, we've been discussing friendship these last few weeks. It's all been quite warm and lovely really. We've been talking about the incredible impact that friendships can have on us and the way we can impact others. But let's be honest tonight. There can be no one more infuriating than a friend. Something about friendship brings the most unique set of pain out of any human relationship really possible. This was driven home to me uh, in a book I saw recently uh, by a man named Paul Lissiki. Uh He is a reporter, and he had a long friendship with a friend, Denise, a fellow reporter. Uh, she died, sadly, when she was 60, of cancer, and this book is a lament about her, of what it was to lose her as a friend, infuriating though she was. He says this about friendships, there are never rules to guide us, no contracts, no bloodlines, just the day after day of it, he writes, it's work, though it pretends it's painless and easy, and beneath everything, the queasy possibility that it might all end tomorrow. There's a beautiful picture of the fragility and the frustration of friendship. I don't know what types of pain you've experienced in your friendships. There's something about the vulnerability and intimacy of sharing life with someone that can all of a sudden turn into the most horrible of betrayals. There can be the moment where that friend who you've walked a long time with, all of a sudden their life circumstance Changes and by physical or relational distance you find yourself estranged from them and no longer in relationship. You can lose a friend to chronic illness and can't access them and who they are anymore. You can start to experience something so severe and painful that you don't even know how to say it out loud and you become isolated and alone. The people you're in friendship with can become so obtuse over time their characteristics so grating that you you never want to reply again. You see, if we don't work out a way of dealing with the pain and the frustration of friendship, we won't keep going. There's a great pull in our culture toward comfort, and if friendships are that painful, why would we keep bothering at all? What we see tonight in 2 Samuel and in in John 15 is that really the gospel of the Lord Jesus gives us unique resources to be able to deal with the pain of friendship, to be able to move forward with it, to be able to cope in the midst of it. Three things I want to look through as we do this tonight. We're going to look at a part of 2 Samuel and John 15, as I said. Three things that I think are thrown up for us as we think this through. Three things to do with the pain of friendship. The first is to grieve it. The second is to give yourself to it again. And the third is to glory in it. Yes, they all start with G. Isn't that great? It helps. Not really. So let's start by talking about grieving. 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 17. This is a remarkable moment in the Samuel narrative. I don't know what would happen when you first became king. But for David, this is one of his first acts. He hears of the fall of the Israelite army, that his beloved Jonathan lies slain, and King Saul too. And now he is king. What is one of the first things he does? He publicly grieves the loss of his friend. I think this has a little bit to tell us, and it's worth kind of dwelling on it. Uh, We aren't so good with grief and lamenting in our culture. We're not so good with dealing with death and announcing it and articulating it like David does. So it's worth spending a little bit of time here. You see, grief is that sum total of a loss of a good thing. All the thinking and the feeling and the behaving, the indent of the self that comes from the loss of a good, and that is what we experience in friendship. Grief after grief. But what we see here in David is a way of recognizing and kind of releasing ourselves from some of that pain. Have a look at it with me. Verse 19 of chapter 1. David says, Your glory, O Israel, lies slain on your heights. How the mighty have fallen. The song begins with an announcement of a massive loss, of something glorious, something beautiful that has been thrown and discarded to the ground. That's what grief is, the loss of any good thing. And here, even though Saul became David's enemy in the end, David publicly recognizes that a good thing has been lost, along with his beloved friend, Jonathan very curious that it's for both of them that he grieves but he's almost in denial about it he doesn't want it to be publicly known in the philistine cities of gath or ashkelon he doesn't want them to be rejoicing over this he doesn't want this to be happening at all in fact what he can't stomach in verse 21 is that the rain just keeps going on mount gilboa saul and jonathan lie slain on the mountain And the world keeps moving like nothing has happened at all. Saul's shield, no longer rubbed with oil but covered in his blood, lies in the mud. David feels the need for the whole world to stop and recognize what is happening. It reminds me of the time when one of my friend's fathers died of a good old age. But he recounted to me the moment of walking out of the hospital and coming out to the street and watching the cars go by and seeing the people around and the malls and the things. And he came out and just wanted to scream. He couldn't believe that the world just kept going. His dad had just died. Everything should stop, he thought. Everyone should pay attention. Everyone should recognize what is happening here. And that's what we see David doing in his lament, recognizing the loss of the good that has happened. What he then does is very skillfully and articulately lay out the thing that has been lost. It's quite a beauty in this bit of poetry. Even Saul, in his mania in the end, had good things that were lost. In verse 22, he speaks of Saul's sword. That slayed, could never be satisfied, always defeated the foe, and Jonathan's bow, that was the same. Military prowess and victory has been lost. Saul and Jonathan were loved and gracious in verse 23. They were beloved leaders. Saul was charismatic and beautiful, and they loved him. And that leadership has been lost. Not only that, but the leadership that Saul brought in verse 24 clothed the daughters of Israel in scarlet and finery and garments and gold. His leadership brought prosperity to the nation. Despite the complexity of David and Saul's relationship, David publicly articulates the good things that Saul had that are no more. I think there's something for us in this, for our culture that struggles with grief, struggles with lament. Because it isn't only death that brings grief. Like I said, it's the loss of any good thing. And there are many things in friendship to be grieved. I was reminded when I was reading this of probably one of my best friend uh, who led me to Jesus. He explained the love of God when I was 15 years old and I became a Christian. Uh, he then read the Bible with me every week for the next five years. Uh, and taught me how to read the Bible, and taught me how to be a leader, taught me how to teach others. I remember very clearly his wedding day, not only because I was his best man, but because the next day I was filled with pain. I was really upset. And I was very, you know, I was 20, so I didn't really know much about anything. But looking back, I was filled with grief. I was mourning. Because the friendship that had changed my life, that period of time that had permanently altered the way things were going to be for me, was never really going to be the same again. And we're still good friends. He's a minister on the badlands of the North Shore, but it would never be the same. And I needed to recognise that and articulate that in order to grieve it. Because a good thing was lost. I don't know what you grieve in your friendships, whether that's a betrayal, estrangement from someone, maybe someone's life circumstances moved on and left you behind. I don't know what that is, but I can tell you that a good thing was lost that needs to be grieved. And one of the ways of dealing with pain in friendship is working out how to articulate that and release ourselves from it in some way. I had a really complicated grief last year over a friend whose our friendship had broken apart some years ago uh, through a series of things that happened between him and other friends. and It was very messy and uh, he died quite suddenly last year. And I had no idea what to do with that. With the pain he'd caused me and the pain he'd caused lots of people, but his loss and he was brilliant and he was gone and I had to have all these conversations trying to articulate this loss this good thing in the midst of complexity that had been stripped away from me and from others. Without that, it would have become a bit of a roadblock to me moving forward in friendships with other people. So this idea of grieving the pain that is there is very essential to us in dealing with the things we face. I wonder what things you're thinking in your head right now that you need to actually articulate and move through, maybe in your journal later or maybe with a friend. But there's more in this lament than that. The second thing you see David doing here is actually giving himself to the same costly, painful friendship all over again. Do you notice what happened right at the end of the poem? It's a little bit of a shift in emphasis. In verse 25, he repeats the opening line again. How the mighty have fallen in battle. And normally that's a sign for the poem to end in Hebrew, for example. But what happens is he stitches on another little verse. And in this verse, Saul is completely eclipsed. And now David thinks only of Jonathan. And in this way, he kind of makes the whole lament really about the deep friendship that he had with Jonathan. He kind of parades it before everyone in writing this song. It says in verse 26 that he grieves for Jonathan. The word is to be compressed and enveloped, physically indented, such is his pain. He he calls Jonathan his brother, such was their closeness, such was their loyalty and commitment and intimacy. He calls him very dear. And then, even more remarkably, he says, your love for me was wonderful more wonderful than that of a woman. Now, that might be something that maybe is familiar to you because that's a type of friendship you've had, but maybe that might seem a bit strange to you. Uh, Some people look at this and they speculate that maybe this is a sign of the romantic entanglement between the two. But I think what we see happening here is actually deeply political. If you look back at verse 18, you'll see what David is actually doing here. What's the purpose of this song? He wants this to be taught to all of Judah, his tribe. He wants this song. He wants his friendship with Jonathan to be on the lips of his entire tribe. He wants this to be the note on which his entire kingdom begins. It's almost like politically he's starting by saying the type of loyalty and love that will bind his kingdom together in its very sinews. As Jonathan was loyal to him, so he calls Judah to be loyal to him. As he from Judah and Jonathan from another tribe, Benjamin, loved one another, So he calls all the brothers of Israel and the sisters to love one another with the same fervent, deep, and affectionate loyalty. He puts costly friendship front and center of his kingdom and summons all of Israel to it. He thinks that the way to build a kingdom is through costly, deep, and affectionate friendship. That is how you bind a community together. And so along with himself, he summons everyone to it. And you kind of get, kind of get the picture, don't you? Imagine an entire kingdom built in this, with the same friendship that David and Jonathan had for one another. The type of things you could get done. The flourishing of humanity that could happen. Imagine if you walk into your workplace tomorrow and all of the relationships functioned like David and Jonathan. Imagine the productivity. (laughs) Imagine uh, the time that you didn't need to spend on conflict. Imagine if you wrote that into your policy, into your meetings, stitched it through things. Imagine if that held our suburb and our city together. David sees in his friendship with Jonathan the way to build community, and it is not blood ties, it is costly friendship. And he grieves what is lost and the pain he feels, and summons everyone to it again. So how do you give yourself to that sort of friendship? I've been thinking about this all week, and I actually think it's more ordinary than it sounds. Think about my friend Paul. Uh, we've been friends for 10 years now. And our f- friendship's pretty simple. We love watching the same type of football. And so we do that. And we pray for each other. It's pretty ordinary, to be honest. <laughs> we just like watching people get hit up in gridiron and the majesty of Premier League soccer. But there's something that grows out of that ordinariness that is bigger than that. It's that walking in the ordinary pockets of everyday life that means that when he went through something really hard, I could tell him some things to do. And I prayed for him and I texted him. And when I went through something, he walked with me through that as well. See, costly friendships start as ordinary friendships. And the cost just comes on the way. And it's through just faithfully walking in the ordinary with people that the cost will come. So if you want to give yourself to the thing that David's talking about, then what you need to do is just walk in the ordinary of your life with someone else. Do the things you normally do. But maybe invite someone else to do them with you. So David calls us to grieve the pain of our friendships, and he summons us to give ourselves to it again. But I think we need more than that. You see, I think our culture is very adverse to pain. In fact, we try everything we possibly can to avoid it. We are all about minimalization, alleviation, and pushing pain to the corner. We don't really think it should be there at all. And so when the ordinariness of friendship gives way to the costly there really is a current in our culture that pulls us toward just being comfortable and forgetting about it. And unless we can deal with that, we're not really going to be able to deal with the pain of friendship. And this is where I think Jesus' words in John 15 are very helpful, if you want to open that up. Page 1069. You see, Jesus does something very similar to David, actually. David put costly friendship front and center at the banner over his kingdom in his friendship with Jonathan. And Jesus, as he's forming his community in John and teaching them and instructing them in, the, in who they should be or should tie them together, he does something similar in the love that should bind them. Have a look at verse 11. I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Jesus says that the way to flourishing to the completeness of joy is to know his love and to remain in it and to give that love to others. Actually, human flourishing exists in the normalness and costliness of human relationship, in throwing ourselves all in into it. And in describing that, he gives this remarkable sentence in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this. Jesus is a good teacher. He lets you finish the sentence in your head before he does. Greater love has no one than this. How do you finish the sentence in your head? How does our culture finish the sentence? Greater love has no one than this, than two newlyweds on their honeymoon. Greater love has no one than this, than two who've been married for 60 years. Greater love has no one than this, than a father to a son. Greater love has no one than this, than two friends experiencing an extraordinary moment. What is the high bar of love that nothing can surpass? Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. For Jesus, there is no higher love than that. there's two things about it. First of all, it's costly love. It's about the laying down of life. It's about the sacrifice of yourself for the other. It's my plans, my life, my ambition, my purpose, my energy, my time and my resources and emotion and thought and money laid down for them. And not for blood relations, but for those outside of my immediate care. For friends. For people you walk along the orderliness of life with. There is no higher love in this universe than this, according to Jesus. This reminded me when I was reading it of a friend who I met again after a number of years. I haven't seen her in eight years or so and she has moved out to rural New South Wales, all the way out into nowhere, and is working at a school. And she moved there originally with some friends, and gradually the friends have left, one after the other, until she's the only one there, and she's wondering whether she should go or she should stay. There's reasons to stay, there's reasons to go. Then one of her friends, disabled, a couple of kids, uh, her husband dies. And so my friend decided to stay. And she became a makeshift grief counsellor, babysitter, cleaner, helper, chauffeur, everything. Can you see the glory in that? Can you see the beauty in that? In the willingness to lay down the things that are ours for the sake of someone else? Can you see why Jesus said there was no greater love? Can you see why David put it at the, as the banner of his kingdom? Can you see why it might be the way toward human flourishing for relationships to, to exist in that state rather than our self-sufficient, selfish state? But I think for us, and I know for myself, I hear that story, and I think that's one story, one time from one person, but I don't think I can do that every day. And I don't know if I can do that at all. Because I know in myself that that pull toward comfort is too strong. I want control. I want to feel safe. I don't want to feel pain. But Jesus here doesn't base this on any human love. He bases it on his love. He says, love each other as I have loved you. He who was more comfortable than you could possibly imagine. The Son of God, the Word of God. He left His home, His comfort, for an earthly life of suffering and our death. So that you might have His comfort. That you might be a son of the Father that you might have a position of security with Him at His table. You see, running from the costliness of friendship won't give you the comfort you need. The death of Jesus does. So why don't you instead drink in deeply the knowledge that you have comfort beyond measure... And throw yourself into the costly, ordinary laugh with the friends around you. It's the extent to which you feel secure in the comfort that Jesus gives that you will be freed to lay down your life for others. Can you see this gospel vision, friends? Can you see the need to grieve? but the need to give yourself to it again. And the glory in it, the glory and the love of the Son for you. Let's pray. Father, we have so many people who've come in and around and out of our lives And you know all our scars. You know all our hurts. You know the burdens of others that we bear even as we sit in church tonight. Father, where we don't know how, help us articulate the pain and grief we feel. Where we don't know how, give us that vision that actually the costly friendship is the flourishing one. And Father, by your Spirit, teach our hearts that Christ has won our comfort for us and empower us to bear the people around us out of love and worship for you. We pray this for the glory of your Son. Amén.